You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Let's listen to this. A sip before we begin. Oh, that's delicious. Drinking Sauvignon Blanc while uh, chatting with the folk. What could be better? <laughs> oh, I like citrusy. Ooh, and crisp. This is a fabulous idea. Do you? How do you get a better gig than that? Is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? This is uncorking a story with your host Michael. It's delicious. Here we are with Brian Matamore from the Growth Engine Company, co-founder. Yeah. He's waving, but no one can see him. <laughs> hey, Mike. <laughs> this is audio, not video. Yeah. Uh, new book out called Idea Stormers, uh, How to Lead and Inspire Creative Breakthroughs, just available. My copy is still hot. I want to say it, it just came off the press, and it still feels warm to me. Well, the signature, is, is the ink dried yet? It's almost dry. It's still smudgy <laughs> if I touch it. It said, you know, and Brian was was kind enough to sign my uh, my edition. Um, said he couldn't do it without me, so appreciate that. Uh, well, yeah, it just it came out last week officially, so it's it's hot off the press, man. Now, are we on the New York Times bestseller list, or? You know, it's actually interesting checking the Amazon rankings, and they 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 go from anywhere from. A millionth, and you know, almost nobody buying it to twenty-five thousand, all three hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand, and so you don't know. Uh, it, it changes hourly based on the sales, and they have. I think they have a fairly sophisticated metric to know uh, what's a hot book and what's not. Right. Uh, so we're we're going to talk about the book. Before we do, um, I just wanted to just get a little background here. So, sure. uh, where were you? Where were you born and raised? <laughs> I was born and raised in the log cabin that I now live in. Believe it or not, I do. I I'm living now in the house that I grew up in as a kid. Uh, my parents moved to Stanford out of New York City. My father was in advertising. He started a company called Sammy, by the way. And if you, you you may you're probably too young to have ever heard of Sammy. Sammy was the major competitor of Nielsen uh, in uh, warehouse withdrawal data. He did it under the auspices of Time Inc. And so he moved, you know, my parents moved to Stanford, Connecticut when I was one. And I've, we've lived there ever since. And uh, my father passed away. My mother passed away. I wound up buying the house from my mother before she passed away. So my son is literally in the, the room that I grew up in. He's, he's in my old bedroom. Yeah, it's funny because I live in the house and my kids and my wife, we all live in the house that my wife grew up in. 
Wow. So we, my, my father-in-law passed away. I think we're an exception, don't you? I think so, too. <laughs> and my mother-in-law is still with mm-hmm. us, but uh, my father-in-law passed away about 10 years ago, right before my kids were born. And my mother-in-law had this big house. She couldn't, you know, keep it up. We had this really tiny house in Stanford, and, and we went from zero to three kids, you know, in, in a matter of hours because right. we, had, we had triplets. And so we just said, hey, why don't we... Uh, Combine resources here, so that's interesting. Nice. How does it feel living in the house that you grew up in? Is it well? My wife exercised a lot of the not a more dysfunctional <laughs> genes or vibes, whatever you want to call it. So it's really it's it's now our house versus my house. That was really important, and I love it. I mean, we're near the Stanford Yacht Club. The kids grew up there. I grew up there. So it's it's a great place to live down in, in Japan. Um, and you know, the other thing I would say just about my background, which I think is critical, is that having grown up in a sort of creative entrepreneurial household uh, with my father, that did shape my life to a large extent. I wanted wanted to ask about that. I wanted to ask about school as well, because uh, what was school like for you as a kid? Did did you have any uh, memories of that? I do, and you know, it's so funny. My wife, I'll, I'll I'll get to the answer here, but I think it's interesting. Um, my wife and I had begun to divide the world into two kinds of people, uh, those who follow rules and, the, and those that don't. <laughs> and those that don't are not, you know, they're not bad people. They just do things very, very differently. Um, I, w- I was a rule follower, surprisingly, as a kid. Um, my wife, and, and I'm still somewhat of a rule follower, which is ironic given the work I do. Uh, my wife is not. I mean, she was one of the scufflaws. She she had more parking tickets in the city of Stanford. She was third on the parking ticket list, you know. Uh, <laughs> they wanted to interview her in the advocate, and she said, no, 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 no. This is earlier when she was working. Uh, but she's like, you know, I can park here, and, and, and you know. And, and there are just some people that... You know, they they pull into a lot and they move the the cone and park there. You know, those kind of. And I tended to be somewhat of a rule follower, so that made my life, in a lot of ways, much more difficult because I was trying to get A's and was getting A's, and it was. And I also uh, wanted to go to to Dartmouth because my father had gone to Dartmouth and my brother wound up going to Dartmouth, and so I I spent I spent a good part of my childhood. Uh, being obsessed with getting into a good school and working hard and and doing well and you know in retrospect I, I wish that had not been the case. Why is that? Because it's just not that much fun. You know you work too hard. It's lousy. Um, you know you sort of this obsessed not obsessive personality but just working really hard to succeed and um, su- succeed based you know on on sort of the the world's view of success. Telling you, quote, what to, you know, what what success is. You know, going to an Ivy League school was defined as success when I was growing up and when I was in high school. Why was that so important to you uh, to go to the Ivy League school? I mean, your dad went yeah. there, and your brothers is a family thing yeah. there. But any other reason? Well, I think I think probably low self-esteem. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm you know, in some ways, I think you know there are you know some of the most successful people on the planet, uh, Martha Stewart in, in, included. Um, if and, and our, I think our society generally most there, there's a lot of quote low self-esteem. I think it's compensating for that. I remember in junior high school, I got every frigging award they had. You know, I was student council president, and I was this, and I was that, and most likely to succeed, and all this stuff. 
And I remember my friend who became an All-State football player at Stanford High, he got most athletic. And my reaction to that was, God, I wish I'd gotten most athletic. I mean, what, the, what, kind, of, what, kind, of, what kind of thing is that? That's ridiculous. Um, you know, I'm fascinated <laughs> because, you know, a lot of times when I talk to creative people and we talk about childhood and we talk about school and stuff, it gets a lot of people tell me the same story. Well, I was kind of a daydreamer. I wasn't really paying attention. My mind was always drifting. I, I learned something, and you know, the teacher would be talking, and in my head, I would picture you know something else or what it would be like to live in that time, and I would tune out a bit um, because they were processing differently. Yes. But I'm not getting necessarily that from you. You're not. And what's really interesting, I think, is that part of the reason I'm quote obsessed with creativity and the creative process is because I was somewhat of, of a rule follower and I saw that my father was being creative and I said, well, how do you do that? How do you be creative like he is? And I couldn't really figure it out. You know, and he would give me tricks to try and it wasn't particularly working. And it wasn't until age 21 that I really began to have my own original ideas and, and I'm not quite sure why that happened. But that, but, but that background of not being able to be creative on demand now, frankly, I was creative. I was, you know, write, pretending, I tell in the book about pretending I was riding on sawhorses and imagining I was in the Old West and some of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I was a pretty rational, logical, in some ways analytical kid. Very, you know, do, doing extremely well in math. Well, now, God, if I took the SATs, I'd, I'd do terribly in math. You know, whereas English, I was very well. Well, now I'm a writer. So I am a case of sort of reinventing myself based on a love and a passion and an interest in the creative process. Do you think that our definition of creativity is too narrow, like the standard definition people have? I, I was a kid. I grew up. I couldn't draw yeah. for, for anything. Yeah. You know, and my brother could, and I, but I just didn't. I couldn't even draw stick figures well. So I always consider, okay, well, I don't, I'm just not creative. And that was sort of my worldview. And over the years, I've come to really have a much more broad definition of creativity because, you know, I, I do things like writing and I do a lot of other things mm -hmm. that are people tell me are very creative, but that was never in my sort of framework or my lens of creativity. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And as we know, I mean, from the research and books that have been written, there are different kinds of creativity. There's a visual creativity. There's, in a sense, you could have kinesthetic creativity, athletes. There's, there's certainly linguistic creativity. And uh, so all these different kinds of creativity, which gets down to passion, thinking style, um, love of things, interests, spiritual mission, Etc. All these things, you know, you put them in the mixing pot, and we get the individuals that we are. And so I, I really, very much worry about even. Well, the what I worry about is people, no matter who they are, is defining themselves as not creative. Um, I think it's incredibly important for all of us to define ourselves as creative. Uh, a because I think we are, and B because um, if you don't, you tend to give up too quickly. Um, I'm not creative, therefore you give up. It's really important, I think, to define oneself as being creative. You know, not, not that I want to um, be cynical about your classmates and their foresight for voting you in the superlative most likely to succeed, <laughs> but one thing you said just a couple minutes ago struck me was that um, you found something you were passionate about. 
Yeah. And to me, that is out of all the people I talk to, um, that's one of that. That's really the glue that to me leads to some kind of success is finding what you're passionate about, and then success kind of follows. How did you, you know, come to, to even find your passion in the creative space? If you were so analytical as a well, I, I really think there are two answers. I do think there's a quote spiritual answer to it. I'll hit that quickly first and then go to the second answer. Um, you know, there have been a bunch of books called The Identity Code and Souls, Co- Souls Code, etc. A bunch of books that talk about that, you know, as coming into this world, we are um, genetically predisposed. That's probably not the right even way to think about it. But there, there is sort of a code there. That, that you can you can see in three, two, three, one, two, three, four, five year old kids who are doing things. I remember Ovechkin, when he, you know, the, the, the Russian hockey player, when he was three, he'd be in Russia watching hockey on TV. His mother would try to change the channel and he would go ape shit. He would go crazy and he would not let her change the channel. Well where does that come from? He had never played hockey before. And so he you could say that he came in to this to this world, if you will, with with that predisposition. So I and I actually believe that. So I do believe that I came in with a, a love and an interest in creativity. In terms of how that, if we move beyond that and go to a more, you know, practical view of how things work, or practical is not the right word, uh, sort of mechanistic view of how things work, maybe. Um, when I was growing up. My father, we would sit in front of the TV, and he would sort of analyze the commercials on TV and say, well, that's a good commercial. And I'd say, well, why do you think that's a good commercial? And he would say why he thought it was a good commercial. And from that, I internalized how to think about communication and, and creativity in the business sense. And so that was, it was really the love of understanding um, why something was and wasn't creative, at least in his opinion. That's where it started. And you uh, you go from Stanford High, you mentioned Dartmouth, mm-hmm. and what did you study at Dartmouth? Psychology. Did you know right away that's what you wanted to study, or when did you make that decision? Uh, I really did know right away. I didn't know in what way I wanted to study it, but I knew I was fascinated with the human condition, and, and I... I began to try to fool myself that I wanted to be a psychologist, even though I just knew that would not be the case. Why but do you I, say fool yourself? Well, because I, I couldn't figure out what I would do with psycho- a psychology degree. So what do you do? You say, okay, well, I'll be a psychologist. But, you know, I'm listening to, um, you know, we used to, I had, there was a, <laughs> a class at Dartmouth. It was abnormal psych. You know, it was, it was known as nuts and sluts. I don't know if you <laughs> called it that at your school. But, you know, I'm listening to these crazy people, uh, or schizophrenics. They have tapes of schizophrenics, and I'm thinking, geez, those are the last people I want to be talking to. <laughs> I'm just not built that way. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a Ritz-Carlton kind of guy. I mean, I'm not about, you know, serving other people in that way. So I kind of knew, at least in part of myself, that I didn't want to be a, a healer in that way. I, uh, it's funny. I, I, in my school, I studied psychology. Yeah. Declared my major you know, during the application process, basically. I knew it's exactly what I wanted to do. And uh, you know, graduated with my BA. 
and um, then went uh, into advertising. Yeah, right. You know, because it's like, what do you do? You, you can't, yeah. unless you go on and get your PhD, or you work in some real dry field, like studying, you know, or, something so, so benign. Or, or testing. You know, yeah. I met somebody at the reunion, and she's a psychologist. She said, I don't analyze people, I do testing. I'm like, oh. No. I mean, it's okay, but, you know... Um, I guess what was also interesting when I was studying all the psych journals and taking all the classes, I was always trying to invent a new field of psychology. I mean, that's what I was looking at this stuff. <laughs> well, it's you know, I was uh, I did my thesis on um, child abuse and trauma, wow. and it actually it hit me as I was writing it up my senior year. Uh, I, I've spent the last two years of my life studying people abused as children, and I was so depressed by it. I couldn't imagine wow. kind of taking that further because I was internalizing it so much. Have you, uh, by the way, it's just a side note, I don't know if you've seen The New Yorker this month, but there is an article by Malcolm Gladwell on how sex offenders, Jerry Sandusky, or what we can learn from sex offenders like Jerry Sandusky, about how what masters they are at ingratiating themselves to a network of people in order to put themselves in a position to uh, abuse children and, and have it called into question whether they did or didn't. That's scary. Because they made friends with the parents or they, they have such an upstanding uh, image in the community, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's, it's a nefarious and you know, unbelievably uh, but, but evil but also um, strategically interesting way that these people are, are doing what they're doing. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, it's one of the scarier corners of humanity. Yeah, I yeah. want to say. Um, but so then, so you, you you get out, you've got your psych degree, you don't get yes. the PhD, and you haven't invented a new field of psychology. No, <laughs> uh, technically you haven't, I guess. So uh, you know, I haven't seen the uh, you know the metamorians out there. <laughs> Oh, they're yeah. coming. You know, you got your Freudians, your Jungians, and the Metamorians. I haven't haven't heard of those. Well, yet. my wife would call them the Metamorons. But <laughs> I, so, by, you, by the way, my nickname for my wife calls me Mo, which is short for moron. So it's a term of endearment. I'm not kidding. Uh, so where do you wind up? You, you leave so, uh, Dartmouth. I leave Dartmouth. I try to get a job in advertising, and I can't get a job. And so I, I it's in the book. It's actually in both books because I thought it was such a good story. Uh, the book I wrote before this was 99% Inspiration, which came out, you know, 15 years or 19 years ago now. Anyway, I, I, um, I couldn't get a job. And so I said, well, i got to come up with an idea. It, if advertising is a business of ideas, i got to be able to show the world that I can come up with ideas, so let me do something. I came up with a, a promotional event called Jogging for Jobs. And jogging was big at the time. I put an ad in the New York Times. I got all these schmoes like myself who couldn't get a job. And I created this uh, promotional event, PR event, where we jogged to the top 36 New York ad agencies dropping off resumes over three days. And, uh, and I told the, the, each agency when we were coming, I said we'd, spend, said we'd spent 20 minutes with them. And, and, and of course, the key to this was the PR. So I had Chuck Scarborough, I had an AP uh, reporter with us, I had radio reporters, and they all went on the jog with us. Chuck Scarborough. Chuck Scarborough. Without yeah. Sue Simmons. 
No Sue Simmons, just Chuck. Chuck was not even on the, uh, he, was a, he was a field reporter then. He, I don't think he was on the, <laughs> the anchor desk. Then. So no jogging for today, did you wear like the Richard Simmons jogging shorts or like a, a headband or wristbands? No, yeah, we had all the jogging paraphernalia, man. We were in sweats. It was great. Going to all these places in sweats, dropping off resumes. And because it was reported in the ad column of the New York Times twice, et cetera, et cetera, it became an event, even though not many of us wound up running. All these people chickened out. But we'd show up at an agency, and they'd have a party for us. They'd give us free food. They chose the commercials. We'd go in with the chairman of the company. Yes, yes, young people are the future of my business as Chuck Scarborough is filming them, et cetera, et cetera. And it became this very cool thing. And... The ironic thing was, here I'm with the chairman of Wells Rich and Green, or BBD&O, or Scholar McCabe Sloves, and I'm saying, you know, gee, Charlie, I'm sorry, we got to go, you know? <laughs> Our 20 minutes is up with you, we got to go to the next agency. And I couldn't have seen this guy in a million years. You really turned the whole job search thing on its head. I did. Right? I did. You know, it's I like, we're, we tell you when we're coming, yes. we tell you how long we're staying, <laughs> you feed us, and then we'll tell you when it's over. Exactly. And, and it was really fun, and, and all of us that, that jogged um, ultimately got jobs, except one guy who said, after he met all the ad guys, he said, I don't want to be in this business anyway. Um, What's he doing now? Is he a psychologist? Or? He is a psychologist. He is a psychologist. He's a up. family therapist, actually. Yeah. So, so I got a job, and uh, I got a job with Marstar, and I got fired from that job after four months. And not many people See, this is where the that. radical thing <laughs> comes in. <laughs> I saved all my radicalness for my teenage, for uh, my young twenties. So, did you go swimming for your next job, or yeah. <laughs> drowning, <running>? biking? Yeah. <laughs> uh, good idea. I like that. Um, I wound up asking Bill Marsteller, the founder of the company. I said, "What do you think?" It was a new employee luncheon. Four months in, it's I still hadn't been to my new employee luncheon. And uh, I, I said to him, you know, I'm curious, what do you think of advertising products that might be harmful to the public? And this was a theoretical question, right? A philosophical question. Well, he took it as a slam on him and his agency. And so they fired me. And so then I was out of work again. And uh, so that was, it, I, I'd like to say it was rough, but it really wasn't. It was liberating because I, I, I kind of hated it there anyway. I said, this, this isn't what I'm looking for. Now, what you hate about it? Because you're, you're, you know, you figured out you're kind of a creative guy. Yeah. You landed in a big creative agency. You had a yep. lot of, you know, a lot of press going into that because of this idea you had. Yeah. Uh, what didn't you like about agency life? It was okay, and and some of the people were great, and but you know, I'm looking at advertising Schlage locks, you know, and I'm thinking, gosh, I, I don't know. You know, <laughs> who cares about Schlage locks? You know, they had a lot of industrial accounts, and and I'm like, you know, Coltar and uh, Chicago Title Insurance and all that kind of stuff. It's ironic though, because I actually find all that stuff interesting now. But at the time, I didn't, because I think I really was obsessed with trying to figure out more about the creative process at that point. And it wasn't until later in life that I kind of figured it out and applied it that, you know, Chicago title insurance now would be interesting to me, whereas it wasn't then. So what'd you do? So I got fired, and then uh, what I did was I said, oh, I got to do something to survive. And um, I started writing copy, ad copy, and then I met this guy who had a new product development firm, an ex-advertising copywriter, sweet, wonderful guy, Gene Whalen, ex-SSCMB, and he hired me 
to do to work at his new product development firm. The idea is they would find inventions that could be then packaged and promoted and marketed and sold and licensed to major uh, companies. And so that was a dream job because inventions would be submitted. And it wasn't one of those, ho you know, um, unethical companies. We were hired by the marketers to find inventions that could be licensed. So anybody that submitted to an invention to us, it was free, and they had the opportunity of maybe licensing their invention. It was a fantastic... I remember thinking I could never have a better job than this. It was incredible because I was seeing invent. I was so excited. I was seeing new inventions every day from around the world and trying to figure out what to name them, what to call them, how to position them to help get them licensed. I'd write up reports on them. I mean, to me, there was no possible better job than that. I was so excited. Um, and then after a year or so, they sold the company. That kind of ended. And then I was back off on my own. And when I was off on my own, then I started writing ad copy, doing brochures, uh, doing promotional ideas. And I was, I was by that time really good at coming up with ideas. And so then I just, um, I started doing all that to, just to survive. And then you didn't ask the question, but I'll tell you what, one of the things that changed my life, I had a friend who was working for Frito-Lay. And, be, and it, by the way, all this time I'm studying the creative process. I'm interviewing experts in the field, writing articles. I got to the point where I was a contributing editor to Success Magazine and Omni and Ad Age and all these different magazines. And I'd go out and interview the experts in the field because that was my passion. That's what I wanted to know. And I had a friend at Frito-Lay who said, gosh, you know about this creativity thing. Could you design and run a naming session for a new cheese Frito? And I said, be glad to. And that, that changed things because there turned out to be a lot of money in running sessions. <laughs> and so is that where the Matamore group came from? It is. Yeah. That's what I, I, and we were doing naming work. We were doing facilitating ideation sessions, still writing some copy. Um, you know, very lean years. I mean, still very lean years. But that's, things started to change when I started facilitating the uh, ideation sessions. Now, were you married at that point? Did you have a family? No. Together? Well, that's the other thing. We put off getting married for like 15 years. And I dated my wife for 15 years, and it got to the point where, uh, you know, we got to have kids. And, you know, I'm mid-30s, and she's going, hey, come on, what are you doing? We clock's gotta, ticking. The clock's ticking, pal, so let's get going here. So, so that uh, that kind of starts to take off a bit. Yeah, a little bit. And then when did you write the first book? The first book was wonderful. Um, I <laughs> I got a call from Sales and Marketing Management uh, magazine, and they had they had read they they had picked up my name from somewhere else from some other quote I can't remember, but they said you know we're doing a story on how to train salespeople on how to be more creative. Do you know anything about that? And I said, well, I sure do. Let me, let me call you back tomorrow. It wasn't a lie, because uh, I, you know, I, I knew a lot about creativity and the creative process. It's just I hadn't particularly made the link to, to sales in particular. And so that night, I made the link. <laughs> I figured out all the ways that you could get salespeople to be more creative. And so we did the interview the next day, and a month later, I'm one of the three experts in the world about how to train salespeople to be more creative. From that, um, an, an editor, and I, and I had really cool and inventive and creative things to say about how to do that. Really good stuff. 
And so from that, an editor at uh, AMICOM, the American Management Association, saw that article. She contacted me and said, would you write a book on, on training salespeople to be more creative? And I said, no, but I'll write a general one on business creativity. And she said, great. And so that was in 1992, three. Uh, I got the con I signed the contract. Oh, by the way, it's when you sign contracts that stuff actually happens. <laughs> like a, what? Like writing. <laughs> like getting it done. Uh, because you sign a contract, there are a certain number of words you promise to, 60,000 words you promise to write with a certain deadline, and then you do the math and you say, gosh, i got to do 500 words a day or I'm not going to make the deadline, and they already paid me in advance on the royalty. So you, it's like you have no choice. You have to do the work. Do you find that you work better under pressure like that? Yeah. Well, um, you know... That was it, a very quick yeah. Yeah, it was, because, you know, this past book, you know, the new book, Idea Stormers, I signed the contract, and better is, a, you know, better is an interesting word, but I signed the contract, and I had to get it done by a certain date. And so I'm working on weekends, I'm working... At, you know, till till three in the morning. I'm getting only four or five hours sleep because I have a day job. I had I really had two jobs for six months. Well, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't signed the contract. There's no way. I would have slept in. I mean, come on. And so, if you mean better by getting it done, I, I didn't have a choice. I had to get it done, so I did. Um, knowing you know how challenging maybe the first book. Now that you mentioned it's challenging to write, I'm just kind of inferring yeah, that that it's a it challenge. Is. It is. Uh, why even write a second? I mean, at that point, you've known what you're getting yourself into, so why do it? Well, you know, it's interesting. In some ways, eh, you might say that the first book was easier to write than the second, which it should be, I think, surprising because you know you figure after you write one, you kind of know what the deal. The first book was really a collection of articles. So I knew, I, knew, I knew how to write articles because I'd been writing articles. So I took a bunch of articles. I, I, you know, an article is sort of one thought. Maybe it's more than one, but, but it's, it's sort of a, it has an easy beginning, middle, and end. And you can kind of get it done. And you can say, I just have to do 36 of those and I got a book. You can kind of parse it down and make it happen. With this new book, Idea Stormers, I, uh, you know, I knew when I interviewed uh, the... My, 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 my agents took the book out, concept out, it sold uh, very, very quickly. We had several offers, and I knew with this particular editor who was by far the best. She was unbelievable. I could tell over the phone that she was unbelievable. I knew she would force me into writing a real book. <laughs> I knew it wouldn't be 36 articles. And so I, you know, the, 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 the youth in me or the, or the less sophisticated part of myself would have said, let me go with a less sophisticated editor because then I can just do it the way I want to. But, you know, the adult in me uh, said, you know, let me take the harder road here and work with this fantastic editor who will force me into doing a much better book than I would just by myself. And so that's the road I took. Uh, it's observation after reading, read your first book, yeah. and I, I only got this last week, and yeah. I've, I've gotten through some of it. It's a page-turner, man. It, it's, uh, I can't put it down. <laughs> Even when I'm driving, I, I try to tell the, you know, patrolman this morning. In between the tests. I say, look, I'm reading this book. I can't, you know, you know. Uh, do, do you have a certain style to you, which, yeah. which I really like, because it's very personal. 
Um, you always start, there's always a personal element in the beginning of, let's say, a chapter, and I always, yeah. there's always a callback to it at the end, and I just, I just, I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's, um, it's hard being friendly, <laughs> or it's hard being clear. It's, you know, even my wife, you know, she, she read this and said, you know, somehow you manage to capture, not, this stuff is not rocket science. It's not hard. You can learn these techniques. I mean, it's not that they're hard. But she said you were very, very clear in the writing. Well, part of that is having my own voice, but a big part of it, too, is the editors. The editors really force me. You know, they write down, where's the teaching moment? It's like, ah, oh, shoot. Now i got to figure out a freaking teaching moment here. And so they, they really push me and force me to, to make this much better than it would have been. I have to say, just having experiences as kind of writing articles, and now I, I edit a magazine, yeah. uh, or I'm one of the editors of one, uh, it's so much harder to be that editor. Like, to me, yeah. the writing is a little bit easier, and I can take criticism, and then I can rework it. Yeah. But for me to find, you know, the, the gaps that need to be filled, I have a harder time doing that. So yeah. I have a tremendous amount of respect for editors. Oh, God, I do too. Well, and, and I had three editors working with me. Can you imagine that? I had sort of the structural editor, the one that appealed to me from the get-go, who was just this uh, enormously talented editor. Uh, the second editor was really sort of a, for lack of a better term, a paragraph editor. So she was kind of working within the paragraphs and, you know, move this one over here and move that one over there. And as I said in my acknowledgement, she was the one that made editing suggestions uh, in my own voice. Oh my gosh, could you imagine? I mean, just incredible. And then, of course, we had a third editor who was a line-by-line -line gr grammatical editor. But, I mean, that's tremendous help and tremendous uh, contribution. And, and what's interesting is they never change the content, you know, but they, they, they kill you with their questions and uh, they force you to be much clearer. Now, you just mentioned something that I find interesting that anybody can read this and learn the techniques. Yes. So it's not, you said it's not rocket science. It's not. So it's not. the cynic in me says, why give away all of your secrets that yeah. you've learned over 20, 30 years, you know, your proprietary tools, yeah. and give them to your clients and give them to your competitors and potentially kind of take you out of it a little bit? Yeah, um, there are a whole bunch of reasons. Number one is... My, it goes back to my passion and mission in life. My mission and passion is to popularize the structure of creativity for, for the planet or for the world. Okay, so that's the core, that's the why within me. Um, it's, it's important that I share that with the world. That's what, I'm here to share that with the world. So that's part of why I'm here, is to share that with the world. That's part of it. Um, at a much more pragmatic level, I want to get a lot of this stuff out there to create room for inventing, having to invent new stuff. Because what's, I think one of the unique, I know, one of the unique things about this book is there are at least 25, maybe 30, maybe more original approaches to the creative process. You know, And so this is stuff you will find nowhere else because this is stuff that we've invented to address specific business challenges. That's one thing. And you know, I, I want the world to use this stuff. The world is going to be a better place if people are coming up with ideas. So that's, that's part of it. Um, and also I want to hear about how it worked for people and how it didn't work. I mean, a big part of what this, the unique contribution is of this book is this, this is based on empirically validated real-world experiences of did this work or didn't it work. 
So that's so getting that out, sharing that with the world, and seeing the world use this stuff, we'll learn more about what stuff works and doesn't work. That's part of it. Um, so in terms of sharing, the other thing too is that there is some expertise on how you customize this stuff and which techniques you use when, and I've shared a lot of the, about that. But there's also sort of a business experience and a business judgment that is, is maybe hard to get by reading a book. I guess the, the short way of saying this, you can read this book and probably get 80% of the way there. And even if you do, poor, do this stuff poorly, it'll still work. But there's some clients that are willing to pay for that extra 20%. Um, the other thing too, paradoxically, is that you know people write books, they'll tell you everything, and they still call you because they, they feel more comfortable, quote, having the expert there. The other part of this is, the last thing I'll say about this is that the book has both ideation and innovation process. And um, when I formed Growth Engine with, with my partner Gary Fraser, um, it's because I had mastered the ideation thing and I wanted to get more into the innovation side of this. This book is really two-thirds ideation and one-third innovation. So the next book, if you will, uh, will probably be, you know, two-thirds innovation and one-third something that I haven't even thought of yet. <laughs> uh, because we're still working on try to, trying to figure out how to get products to market successfully. What are the structures within an organization? And what are the human considerations, more so even than structures, that will make, that, make you be successful at that? So there's, you know, there's getting products to market, but the sure. other way I think about this is it could be so much more than that. I mean, you talk about the world being a, a, a greater place. You could, you know, look at social issues, absolutely, and, and use this the techniques in this book to help reframe them and yeah. then ideate around potential solutions for them. So it's yes. not just limited to what we could put on the shelf and buy at Walmart. You're absolutely right, and I, I I appreciate your saying that because I really shouldn't even have talked just about new products. This stuff, these processes can work. To your point, for anything, it does not matter. For you know, curing world hunger. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, you can use this stuff for anything. And, and, and it's important that, that we do, frankly. Yeah, as I think about my kids, uh, yeah. I, we, have, we have triplets, they're in fifth grade right now, and you know, they take subjects like math, and yeah. they've got English, and you know, unfortunately music kind of gets cut out a little bit. Yeah. You know, and, and they have art. Um, you know, we could argue whether or not it's a good art program, but they have a little bit of art in there. Yeah. You know, I think at this age, it, I, I don't think it's too young for them to start learning some of these some of these techniques. Well, it's funny you should say that. Gary and I did a training uh, a couple weeks ago for LVMH. That's one of our uh, training clients, um, Louis Vitomo at Hennessy, and um, and one of the people in the training said, she almost said, "My God, why is the stuff that you're teaching us not being taught to our kids?" She was so almost indignant about it. She said, this stuff is unbelievable. Why aren't our kids learning this stuff? Now, some of the stuff is being taught, like some of the writing stuff. I don't know if you've seen it, things like clustering and, and uh, tree diagramming mm -hmm. to help kids write better uh, and come up with ideas for writing. There's some of that, but, but there's you know, probably one twentieth of one percent of what they really should learn. 
to help. And, and, and funny, it's funny because the studies, as we know, basically up until age five, kids test at a genius level. I mean, they really do. On the NASA uh, test of creativity, the kids generally test at a genius level. It's as they get into school more. By the time they're 12, it's down to like 8 or 12%. I've forgotten the number. But it gets progressively worse. So it's not that we need to teach them how to be creative because they already are creative. We need to teach them, uh, A, to keep that creativity or to unlearn how they've learned not to be creative or... Uh, we need to give them some of the tools that will make them even more creative. So one of the things that, that I think about, you know, you being a guy that helps people come up with ideas, you come up with ideas yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the side of the, the business world, anyway, that I've been in for a while is on the evaluation side. Yep. So I'm the, I'm the guy that goes into a focus group or whatever and brings what you've created and, you know, hopefully... Uh, finds ways to optimize it. But oftentimes there is a tension between sort of the creative, let's call it the creative department, and sort of the research or analytical department. What's your kind of take on that? Is that a a positive tension? Is that a negative tension? Well, you know, I'll answer that in a couple of ways. Um, We see... We'll be we'll be doing a, a focus group, let's say, and this will be at the very early stages. So less about validation and more about learning. Yeah. And I know you do a lot of that stuff as well. And there'll be times when people are saying contradictory things, you know, and the client is oftentimes in the back freaking out. They are freaking out because that check that they wanted to put on that box is, you know, their hand gets palsied and they're not able to quite make the check yet. And the ambiguity of it starts freaking them out. And for us, we say ambiguity is an invitation to a further learning and a further conversation. So for us, it's okay. It's fun. It's interesting because sometimes within that ambiguity is a tremendous insight that's waiting to be discovered. So we just have to kind of pat them on the back and calm them down and say, you know, this is all about the learning. We're going down the process. Just kind of go with us. And generally they do because they've already hired us and they can't get rid of us at that point. <laughs> and, and then, it, 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 frankly, it always works out. You keep doing this. And as you know, Mike, you, you, you learn more and more and more and you really begin to figure it out. And so those contradictions, those tensions between you and the agency and all this kind of stuff, you do enough of this and it gets to the point where you really kind of know what's going on. Well, I guess I get to the point where I, I read, you know, in, in newspaper articles and magazines, you know, people saying focus groups are where good ideas go to die. Yeah, right. And, you know, and, and to some extent I can, I can understand that sentiment. Uh, there's a lot of people who, who do what we do, uh, do what I do, and, you know, they, they do it in a way that, that might be a little bit more conducive to death and, and, and maybe not building something up but tearing it down. Yes. Uh, so what words of advice do you have for you know, people who are tasked with going into a room and evaluating an idea or getting some feedback on it to make it as productive as it can be for the creative side? That yeah. Well, the, the challenge is you know, sometimes the, the moderator is restricted by the client in terms of what the client is after. And, and what it usually is is a judgmental or an evaluation of what they've got. And oftentimes, evaluations or judgments are done too early, much too early in the process. So do you like A or like B? And the consumer's going, I don't even, I don't like either A or B. I like C. Why didn't you, where's C? This is terrible. What are you doing? And you're in a position where you're saying, 
do you like the red A or the green B? And, the, and it's the wrong question, right? And, and so what we, because we are on the fuzzier front end of this, we do a lot to prevent, if you will, premature decision-making, <laughs> we'll call it that, uh, um, and really keep the process open longer so that there can be more learning, so that there's less of this sort of this or that, and more about how about. Yeah, to me, it's always my sort of frame of mind is, you know, consumers aren't necessarily your source for ultimate validation, but they can be a great source of inspiration, and they can give you that direction to focus on, you know, a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that, something new that you haven't thought of. Yes. But you can't always look to them to give you the answer, because at the end of the day, that they're not good at that. No, they're not. And and you know, and I and I love the way you said that. Um, and and so one of the tricks we do, and I'm sure you do as well, is you know we'll give over just a tremendous amount of stimuli to to help us get new learning. So we'll make up lousy prototypes if it's new products. We'll make up lousy prototypes. You know, just to get a response. We'll we'll often throw in ideas that we know are really bad, but we do that just because we want to get more insights about why it's bad, and then maybe you can flip it. Um, the 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 point here, I think, is that you know it's a lot like quantitative studies. People go to quantitative studies way too early, right? They they get they do an ideation, they write up twenty things, twenty short ideas, put it in a con screen. They get you know fifteen that come back that are all they get ten that are bad. They get eight eight are mediocre and two that are better than mediocre, and they have and then they don't know what to do. They have no idea because there's no insight or learning about what they're testing. And the thing could test, a brilliant idea could test very poorly, right, because you got some part of it wrong. The name, the package, the value proposition, the, what you're saying about it, the positioning, all, you know, all that stuff has to come together. The, you know, one word in the concept could blow the whole thing, as you well know. And so, um, you know, so there, there needs to be a lot more creativity and, and time spent up front before we get to the deciding part of it. Yeah, and I, I also think, too, that there are just some products or ideas that you're never going to get a clean read on by consumers. And, and I go Absolutely. back to, you, you tell somebody in 1993 and put, put the concept for the iPod in front of them, yep. they're just not going to get it. They're yep. not... Yeah. Ten thousand songs in my pocket. It's just not even. It's just not even. You know. What's your name? I'd be like to meet you. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's. Uh, but there, I think there are some ideas that you really just can't get a great clean consumer read on. Now yeah. you can understand what their needs are. Yes. That leads. That could lead to an idea. But for something that's really game changing, I think it's really hard to yeah, get no, a fair read on it. I, I think that's a really good point. The game changers, I think, to your point, are particularly hard to get a read on. Because there's very little context for, for knowing. And, you know, so in our case, when we have what we think are game changers, they're very different ideas. We do a lot more either in-home use testing or, or letting people try this stuff rather than a conventional focus group. And maybe we'll bring in a focus group after we've done a home use test. But, you know, when, it's, when, the, when they're very different ideas, people need to use them and play with them for a while if we're talking new products. Yeah, and I think that the paradox there, though, is that if it's a truly game-changing idea, yeah. it's going to require a lot of investment. 
And because it it's going to require a lot of investment, they want a lot more validation. Yeah. And it's like, well, but some of this stuff you just can't validate. <laughs> yeah. No one wants to hear that as an answer. No, they don't. They don't. And so you're right. I mean, you know, a, a big part of it is sharpening the gut, if you will. And, um, you know, come on, we're creative people. We kind of, we're experienced people. And you make a call and you take a shot at it. Uh one last thing that yeah. I want to talk about because yeah. I know we're getting on here, yeah. but uh, this is fun. It is fun. I think it's I'm good. liking it. Yeah, yeah, no, this. I don't know if it's good, but it's fun. Well, yeah, it might not be. Good. <laughs> it might not be. We'll focus group it out later. We'll find out. <laughs> Put five point scale together. Uh, here's an area where I yeah. think we need more creativity. Yeah. And that's Hollywood. Yeah. Because you know, I'm a movie guy. I like. Uh, I don't see a lot of movies anymore. Certainly yeah. not a lot of new ones. Yeah. Um, but I remember everything that I see. Yeah. Why is Hollywood obsessed with remaking movies? Money. Money. Yeah. But it's it's like they're making they're remaking Red Dawn, which is a personal favorite of mine right. you know, from the eighties. Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze <laughs> and and Charlie Sheen and Ali Sheedy, Emilio mm. Estevez may have been in there. Right. Sure. Um, why remake that movie? Why can't we come up with new plots, new yeah. movies? They should read this book and come up with some new movies. Well, they you know? should. I agree with you. Um, you know what? I think. I think it's. I, I. I don't think it's very far from our world, frankly. I think it's. It's just a classic case of <clears throat> the cost of building a brand. Why are there so many wine extensions? Why? Why? Why do we? Why do we see very few newly created brands by established companies? Because it costs so much money to establish a brand, and so therefore. You know, let's just leverage our brand and come out with a sequel. And of course, also we know that you know we we the the plant the, the the industry has built itself into a blockbuster weekend kind of thing. And so, you know, you've got brand recognition. You put a lot of advertising money up front. You get a lot of people in the theater the first weekend, and you make your money back. So it makes sense from an economic standpoint. I suppose. I just want something new. Well, yeah. <laughs> something game-changing. Yeah, it's amazing when you actually... To me, it's amazing when you actually get an original idea in a sequel. And that's, that's pretty infrequently. Um, you know, because you'll get, you'll get an original idea like uh, Road Warrior, right? Which was such an interesting idea when it came out, based on Mad Max. But then Road Warrior... But then, uh, you know, Thunderdome... I thought it was an incredible sequel because it had another original idea in it. Well, let's face you know? it, it had Tina Turner. It did have Tina so Turner. That had, yeah. And then it had Two Men Enter, One Man Leave. Two Men Enter, One Man Leave. And it had, uh, you know, uh, methane production from, you know, pig shit. You know, so, I mean, come on. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> they should make a Soylent Green part, too. A what? A yeah, Soylent Green. Do you remember that movie? No. With Charlton Heston? No. And there was, there was uh, it was like... This sort of dystopian society, futuristic. Oh, really? And there was a there was a food shortage, so they some company created this stuff called Soylent Green, and it turns out it was made with people. Uh, and so yeah, the so, so Charlotte Soylent wow. Green's people. <laughs> SNL did a whole school fun. Well, so, so that's like the uh, the Twilight Zone uh, episode where. You know the the formula for six. I guess it was a formula for soup made out of humans or something. The aliens coming or some such thing. Yeah, there's a show that was ahead of its time. Yeah, the, unbelievable. The Twilight Zone. Unbelievable. Well, I, I heard him interviewed Rod Serling, and he said, you know, it was 
the reason he went there, because he could have written anything, the guy was brilliant, but he went to science fiction because it allowed him to explore ideas that he could not have explored in a conventional uh, realm, if you will. Same with Star Trek, as we know. Yeah. You know, Gene Roddenberry. You know, he was able to explore, for instance, the, you know, the tension between the races, the cultural tensions on that show. You know, the guy, one show where the guy has half white and half yeah. black face. I mean, he couldn't do that at that time, but he could do it in a science fiction way. You know, you, you, you watch that show now, so you watch yeah. those old episodes, and I, I loved them. I watched yeah. uh, all, what was it, 80-something? Yep. I can't remember, 70-something yeah, episodes. Yeah. And you look at that back then as a kid, it's like, wow, this is really new and different. Now I look at it and it's it's a little, you know, it's, it's definitely dated. It's definitely dated. And it's, def it's definitely melodramatic yeah. with uh, Billy Shatner. Yeah. But the, the themes that they were exploring really were cutting edge yeah. for the time period that they were being yeah. shot in. And, and I, you know, I think a lot of them still hold up, frankly. I mean, I, I could still watch them. You know? Absolutely. Captain Pike chair, come on, I'm there. That was, that was the pilot, wasn't it? It was. Whatever happened, it was Jeffrey Hunter played yeah. uh, Christopher Pike. Yeah, I don't know. He uh, came back in the, in, the, in the movie. The um, who did the movie? Was it Abrams? J.J. Abrams did the Star Trek movie a couple of years ago with. Uh, oh yeah. Um, and Christopher Pike was actually a character in the movie. Oh, uh, was he? He was. Yeah. yeah. They they blew that out a little bit. But interesting. Anyway, uh, last question: If you couldn't yeah. do what you're doing for a living, yeah, what would you do? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I. My father, growing up, my father would have said, oh, you should be an architect. And I always had that thought, oh, I could be an architect. But that wouldn't be my answer. Uh, that would have been his answer for me. <laughs> but I think my answer, um, and this may actually happen in my future, I, I think I would be a writer of young adult novels. Is that different enough? It's different enough. Yeah. Because okay. uh, I, I think I would be a writer... Uh, Maybe a, a, a teacher. Uh, My cousin does that. He's a, he's, yeah. a, he's, a, he's a teacher, and he just published his second young adult novel. He's big into jazz. Uh, wow. So his first one was on the life, not the life. The first one, the plot, was about, um, uh, oh, my God, Duke Ellington. It's called Riding on Duke's Train. Nice. And the second one is about Louis Armstrong. It's called Travels with Louis. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, he's... Uh, it's fantastic. He loves it. Well, you know, it's interesting because I do think if you can take a world and combine it with another world, in this case, obviously, jazz and fiction, you've got a really cool offering. And that's, I've actually written and, and my agents are going to be representing a, a young adult novel that kind of combines my whole knowledge of creativity with an interest in ki teaching kids how to be more creative. And so that's what this young adult novel will be about. But that's essentially combining two different worlds, right? Yeah. And so that's, so that's kind of a cool thing. You know, one thing I remember reading from your first book, you mentioned, you referenced it a lot, was coming up with new game ideas. Yes. And licensing them. Yes. Was that a, a hobby of yours? Did you it, do that for a living? Or? I was passionate about that and thought I, and I, I still have a game, I had licensed a game to the Games Gang, uh, it's called Bright Ideas, and I, I still may actually rewatch that. Uh, but I made an option fee on that. The company got bought. The rights reverted back to me. I also invented a whole bunch of games that were written up in magazines. I licensed the name Ghost to Milton Bradley. I thought that I could make it in the early years as a game inventor. Um, 
but then I got interested in this whole facilitation thing, and so I didn't go there. But you're right. I I, I thought that I would be a game inventor at one point in my life. Yeah. A game, yeah, game and toy inventor. And the, you know, the white space for that, I think, is is with technology being what it is. I see, you know, people doing these things over social media. Yeah. Where it's all about sharing, and then even tweeting stuff for contests. It's really there's really a whole new world out there. It's not just people sitting, which is great. I still love. You know, doing board games with my sure. kids, even as even though it's old fashioned, yeah. um, but it's kind of getting out of the living room, family room, kitchen table into the world, the computer, the handheld. That I think opens up a lot of cool areas for that. The other thing I I might do, which would be create a whole new job, would might be kind of a creative social media maven. So figuring out ways to get creativity on the planet uh, in a social media way to address certain challenges. That would be kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Why don't we end it on that one? That sounds good. There we go. So thank you very <laughs> well, much, Brian Matamor. Off the road, Idea Stormers, How to Lead and Inspire Creative Breakthroughs. And uh, you can pick it up at Amazon.com or I'm sure wherever books are sold. And Barnes & Noble, too. we got to get equal billing for Barnes & Noble. Love Barnes & Noble. <laughs> yeah. I'd say Borders, but they closed ours. Yeah, no, we can't get it there. That, that's going to be a... <laughs> close it around the world. <laughs> that's going to be a Trader Joe's pretty soon, that border. So thank you very much. All right, and, thanks, Mike. This uh, was a lot of fun. For uncor- Uncorking a Story, I'm Mike Carlin.